to Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, that's on page 481 um, in the Pew Bible. Isaiah 7. By the way, if you're uh, new or maybe even not so new in these parts, um, it, I didn't realize until recently trying to use one of the Pew Bibles is not necessarily that friendly for those of us over 40. Uh, there are larger print Bibles uh, on the shelves as you uh, come in. Uh, if you do need a Bible and are having trouble focusing in on the uh, print in the uh, Pew Bible, uh, I maybe I picked the I, I'm the one who sent in the order for the Pew Bible, so it's my fault. I just didn't realize quite uh, how challenging it would be for uh, some of us. Uh, to read that small type. Anyway, uh, there are larger print versions uh, available uh, in the back as well. Isaiah 7, uh, we'll be reading uh, 1 through 17 of this chapter. Hear God's holy word as it's inspired and given to us. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim, so his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within sixty-five years Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people." The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now. O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Amen. That's far God's word. If you live long enough and reflect on your life, you will know that sometimes the very worst punishment is getting exactly what you wanted all along. And that's exactly what happened to Ahaz. God gave to King Ahaz his heart's desire. He desperately wanted help, not from the Lord, but from the Assyrians. And as the passage goes through and as it ends, he got the Assyrians all right, and it was quite devastating. And God gives to you and to me this passage that we might examine our own hearts 
and might think about what is it that we really desire? Where do we really think our salvation will come from? What do we really think will enhance our lives, our longevity? What will bring safety to us? And is our hope in the Lord, in the name of the Lord, or would we fill in the blank otherwise like Ahaz would? And so really, Ahaz is held out to us as an example, not in a positive way at all, but actually as a warning to us in line with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Are we going to lean on our own understanding, on our own wisdom, on our own resources, or will we look to the Lord? God wants you and me to answer our greatest fears, those nagging fears that keep you up at night, those nagging fears that make you worried throughout the course of the day. God wants you and me to answer those great fears of our lives with Emmanuel, by believing in God with us and the God of the covenant who keeps his promises to us, God who will establish his purposes instead of looking to ourselves and our own resources to answer our worries and fears, to trust in and to find our belief, our security in Emmanuel. Now, we know from experience that it is easy to get overwhelmed and to fear when we face difficult circumstances. And that's exactly where this passage begins. Ahaz is faced with overwhelming life circumstances, and we find that he is afraid. Ahaz was the grandson of Uzziah. Remember, Uzziah had died, uh, passed away. Isaiah is the prophet of the Lord. Jotham reigned for a short time. And around five to ten years later is the time frame in which this encounter uh, takes place. I've told you previously that the reign of Uzziah was a prosperous reign. It was a good time uh, to be in the nation of Judah. It was a good time uh, because Egypt was kind of a non-entity at the time. Assyria hadn't gotten its act together. And so Uzziah actually was able to exert some authority, some influence on the nations around. It was a time of peace and prosperity. But around the time that he died and through the reign of Jotham, Assyria is on the ascendancy. And it helps us if we pull out at this point our handy biblical map, our map of Israel, which is not found, you'll remember, in the back of your Bible, but is found right on your hand, right? And we want to remember that here is the Mediterranean Sea, and down here is the land of Egypt, this little crease right there where the fingers come together, that's the Sea of Galilee, with the Jordan River coming south to the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's right about here, right? So that's the nation of Judah down here. Just north of them is Israel, the northern ten tribes who had broken away right after the death of Solomon. Just north of them is the nation of Syria, where Damascus is the capital. And just a little bit uh, north and to the east is, and it's a little confusing, right, but is Assyria, which has as its capital city, Nineveh. Nineveh is on the rise, and what's happened is Syria and Israel have put their heads together and said, uh-oh, we're in trouble, we better have an alliance here. And, you know, you know what's better than having two nations in an alliance? Three nations. So not only should we have Syria and Israel in our little club, but let's recruit Judah as well. And so they came to recruit Judah, and Ahaz said, no thank you. So they said, well, if you don't want to respond to our kind offer, we will invade you. 
we will have a warm-up event uh, to our future battles with Assyria, and we will come down, we will capture your nation, and we will put our own king on the throne. Thank you very much. And you can put your finger here in Isaiah chapter 7 and flip back to 2 Chronicles 28, if you want. Sorry, I don't have a pew Bible number for you, but it's going to be somewhere around 319, uh, plus or minus 4 or 5 in your Bible, because I know it's close to mine. 2 Chronicles 28. And we see here the record of the reign of Ahaz. Verses 1 through 4 tell us that he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked and he made molded images. He burned incense. And verse 3, he burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations around He sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. Therefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Assyria. They defeated him, and they defeated them, verse 6, killing 120,000 in Judah. Verse 8, they took away, uh, the children of Israel carried away captive 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and much spoil. Some of the captives, it tells us, went all the way north, all the way to Damascus. Uh, Another 200,000 go only as far as Samaria. And while they are there in Samaria, verses 9 through 15 record for us that the Lord raises up a prophet. His name, verse 9, is Oded. And he says to the Israelites, these northern ten tribes, he says, what you are doing is not good. Capturing your brethren, this is going to bring the displeasure of God on you. We ought to put some clothes back on these people and send them back to their homeland. And guess what? For once, they heard the word of the Lord And the northern ten tribes did exactly that. Now that summarizes, back to Isaiah 7, that summarizes verse 1 with a little more content, puts a little more meat on the bones. Uh, Rezin and Pekah had come against Jerusalem. They couldn't take the city, but they had inflicted great damage. And now word comes to Ahaz, Syria is back on your northern border. Now, there are a few things that we need to appreciate about the situation that Ahaz finds himself in. First of all, No doubt Ahaz, as one of the people who had been taken captive to Samaria, has some PTSD of his own. I've already been through this. We've seen how this story ends in chapter 1. And my army is much weaker now. There's no reason to believe that chapter 2 will be different. Not only does he have reason to have PTSD because of prior experience, but Jerusalem is also a whopping 10 to 15 miles away from the border with Israel. Remember, when God made Jerusalem to be his holy city, where the temple would be and where the king would dwell, The idea was it would be accessible to all 12 of the tribes, right? The idea was not, let's put this as geographically centered in Judah as possible to make it inaccessible to the other tribes. No, the idea was, let's put this in a place where the tribes can can get there fairly easily. It might remind us of, in our own nation's history, not of the fears that we might have today of, say, China, where we are separated by a giant ocean, the Pacific Ocean, from anything that they can launch against us, 
but actually of the war between the states. And Lincoln spent, President Lincoln spent a lot of time worrying about the fact that our nation's capital happens to be right across the Potomac River from Virginia. And not only that, but on his backside is Maryland, which was not a super friendly state to the Union cause. And Ahaz finds himself just 10 or 15 miles away from Syrian troops. And just to add to the complexity, it's not the Syrians who agreed with the prophet of the Lord that, yeah, let's go ahead and send Ahaz and some of these captives on back home. As far as Ahaz knows, the Syrians are kind of taking, why would you do that? We had this plan, and we had the king in captivity. That's the perfect arrangement for us to install our king. What were you thinking? He has every reason to believe that the Syrians are hopping mad. And so the text tells us that as they heard this news, as they processed it, verse 2, Ahaz's heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. You know, one of the great things about the Bible is how timeless the analogies and descriptions are, right? You don't have to have ever been to the Middle East to know what it's like when the wind sways the branches of the trees, and that flutter that we get in our hearts when we're scared, we know what Ahaz was experiencing in his family life, what they were experiencing there in the, in the palace. They're scared. Now, it's easy for us to be, be fearful, and there are times it's actually good for us to be afraid. God has given us fear as a God-given emotion, as a God-given caution, right? We, we should be afraid to run out into traffic, for instance, right? There are certain things that we should be cautious about. We should be cautious about some of the overlooks in national parks where we're in a remote enough area where they don't have railings, right? There should be a little flutter in our hearts, Matthew Henry is helpful in this regard when he gives us five guidelines for how we can know when our worry or anxiety is sinful as opposed to when it's God-honoring. It says, does it rob you of sleep? Does it toss you in your mind? Does it rob you of your joy in God? Does it distract you from God's goodness and God's love? Does it keep you from enjoying what God has given? Certainly Ahaz was in a place of anxiety and of anxiety that he was processing and dealing with in a sinful way. Well, what does the Lord do to Ahaz, or we might say for Ahaz? Well, we actually see God sending his word to Ahaz. And in the midst of our anxieties, in the midst of our worries and fears, we need to look for the Word of God in order that we might believe in it as well, that we might embrace it instead of being fearful. God's not at all fooled about what's going on in the palace, is He? God doesn't need Ahaz to provide him with a press clipping saying, I'm scared for God to know exactly what's going on in his heart. And God graciously, verse 3, sends Isaiah. Now, remember, Ahaz is a pagan king. 
Ahaz is not seeking the face of the Lord. Ahaz is not at the temple asking God to give him some level of assurance, some some word of comfort. Isn't it encouraging, actually, how often in our fears and anxieties, how the Lord comes to us, how he comes to us with his word. And Isaiah finds Ahaz not at the temple seeking God's answers, but where does he find him instead? He finds him at the aqueduct. He's up by the fuller's field. Now, I had to look this up. I'm guessing there's a few of you who know what a fuller does, but probably not most of you. A fuller has to do with the process of making wool cloth. They had the job of washing away some of the oils and kind of pre-shrinking the fabric uh, before it is, uh, before it's gone and turned into uh, articles of clothing. So that would be the fuller, and they needed a lot of water to do this. Ahaz is up at the water source, and why is he up there? Well, he's checking out the aqueduct. Now, when the Syrians come again, will the water be able to get to the city well? Right? Do we have the kind of pipes in place that we can be sustained even if there is a time of siege? So Isaiah comes to him there, and he comes, we're told, with his son, uh, Shir Jashub, whose name meant a remnant will return. And he's not there. Isaiah did not bring along his son because his wife was busy and couldn't provide childcare that day. God has Isaiah bring this child along. And there's a word here both of warning but also encouragement to King Ahaz. Right? The warning is there's going to be a remnant. Not everyone's going to make it through what the Lord's going to bring on this nation. The encouragement is there's going to be a remnant. The Lord will bring some through what's going to happen in this nation. And God sends Isaiah to come out and to deliver a message to King Ahaz. Now, the particular question that's in view here and really through the rest of the section that we've read is, the house of David, will it survive? Can it survive? And Isaiah is going to, if you will, to preach to King Ahaz based on God's covenant promises to King David back in 2 Samuel, but Ahaz is not wanting to think about those things. Ahaz is not wanting to think that the line of God, that the line of David should be left in God's hands. And so Isaiah comes with a very challenging message, verse 4. It's a very challenging message if you've ever been in a place of fear and anxiety. He says, King Ahaz, listen up. Listen up. Your job is to do nothing and not be afraid. Don't be afraid and sit still. Hold your peace. And you know that that is one of the hardest things to do when you're in a time of fear. But Isaiah is saying to King Ahaz, your responsibility in this situation, Ahaz, is to watch and see because God is going to deliver you. And by the way, Ahaz, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of 
Verse 4, if we put this in a modern translation, we might say of these little cigarette butts that just have a little bit of glow still around the edge on the ground. Don't worry about them. God knows about them. God knows about the king of Syria. God knows about Israel. And Ahaz, they are no threat to you. Stand by Ahaz and watch God deliver you. And the big question for Ahaz at this point is, will Ahaz, will Ahaz believe that salvation is through him and his efforts, or will he believe that salvation is of the Lord? Put that in the broader context of the whole book of Isaiah, where the grand message of Isaiah is, Jehovah saves, the Lord saves. And God's calling on Ahaz here to believe that, even in the midst of his kingdom. And God goes on to articulate this, right? I, I, know, I, I know the plans that they have, verse 5. They think they're going to come up and bring trouble, tear down the wall, make a gap so that we can come and go as we please, and we're going to install our king to reign. But God says, I have other plans. Listen, Ahaz, I know the characters involved here. I know where Syria is and where its capital is and who its king is. But that's not the king that I've put in Jerusalem. And I know where Israel is. I know where Samaria is. And God even really is dismissive of the king of Samaria or the king of Israel, right? He, through the mouth of Isaiah here, Isaiah kind of pretends he's forgotten the guy's first name. Oh, the son of Remaliah, the son, you know, that guy. It's quite dismissive. And God says, verse 8, Ephraim that you think is such a threat in 65 years will be broken and not even be a people. I told you earlier, this prophecy takes place around 735 B.C. By 722 B.C., um, Assyria had come from the north and come down and overthrown Samaria. They've deported the people of Samaria, and by 671, which is almost exactly 65 years after this, uh, the king at that time, Esarhaddon, had resettled Samaria so that there was what Assyria had done is enfolded the northern ten tribes into their whole nation. They're no longer a unique people group. And now Assyria has repopulated that portion of the land. And there's now no, not only not a unique people group, but there's no land for them to come back to. This prophecy came true. But God here says not only verse 8, and there's actually tight poetry between 8 and 9. Don't worry about Syria and Damascus and Rezin. Ephraim is going down. The northern ten tribes are going down. Don't worry about Ephraim and Samaria and Remaliah's son. But if you won't believe, you're going down. And there's a play on words here in the Hebrew. If you won't stand by faith, Ahaz, you won't stand. Or if you won't persevere in faith, you won't persevere. If you won't stand firm in faith, you won't stand firm. And God's confronting Ahaz with that same concept that Jesus confronted, uh, confronts us with in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Are you going to put your foundation, Ahaz, on the sand? And when the storms come, they're going to blow you over, or will you build your foundation on the rock? 
God comes to us just like he comes to Ahaz in our great worries and our fears and anxieties. And he says, here's my word. Are you going to believe what my word says is true? Or will you build your life around your assessment of your own situation? Will you build your life on the sand of your plans, your concepts of what will bring victory? God brings his word and challenges Ahaz and challenges us to believe his word rather than living in fear. I've already said that it's gracious on God's part to send Isaiah with his word to Ahaz. But God is not done being gracious to Ahaz, is he? Because we see in verse 10 that God not only gives him his word, but offers him a sign. And God wants us, instead of being controlled by fear, not only to hear his word, but also to look to the sign of Emmanuel in order to be built up in belief. God encourages us to believe with the sign of Emmanuel. God doesn't owe Ahaz anything, but verse 10, God gives him a blank check in essence. Ask for a sign. It could be something in the waters below. It could be something in the sky above. God's saying, Ahaz, I know you're scared. You're not fooling me. Just ask me. Just ask me to do something, and I'll do it to point you to the reality of my plans that I'm going to bring Ephraim and Syria to nothing. And what's Ahaz's response? I won't do it, and I don't need it. Disobedience and denial. I don't have a problem with fear. I don't need any help at all. And in essence, what Ahaz does here, if you will, is to say, you know, thanks a lot, Mr. Prophet of the Lord Isaiah. We've had our little religious break for the day, but you know, Isaiah, the grown-ups need to get back to, we've got geopolitical matters to deal with. We've got discussions about national security. You know, religion is nice and all of that. You can go and talk to the Bureau of, you know, how to make the nation think positive thoughts in the midst of difficult times, but that really doesn't apply to the king and the king's key advisors right now. Thanks a lot, little boy. Now go on your way. I've got it under control. And Isaiah won't be dismissed quite so easily. He breaks through again and says, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? It, but will you weary my God also? Says, it's one thing to be dismissive of me and the message I bring. Okay, fine. But you're going to be dismissive of the Lord of hosts? Ahaz, think about what you're doing here. Ahaz, God is offering a thirsty man named King Ahaz cold 
refreshing water in the middle of the desert. And you said, I'm not, I'm not thirsty. I don't need help. I'm not scared. I've got it all under control. And so therefore, verse 14, in spite of you, God says, therefore, in spite of you, I'm going to send a sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. And notice how that sign correlates with the very truths that God is showing forth. Ahaz is concerned, saying, the future of the kingly line rests with me. I'll be the one to preserve my household. I've got to do things internationally to make this happen. I'm going to have to enter into an agreement with Assyria to protect our nation. And abominably, I'm going to have to burn my children to ensure that this nation goes forward. And God says, no, no Ahaz. It's actually going to be a virgin showing that it's not through the strength of man. A virgin will bring forth a child who will be the crucial component the king who will ensure God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And you know, of course, Matthew 1.23, that this prophecy finds its fulfillment in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ through the womb of the Virgin Mary. And notice what verse 15 says, Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, it's fascinating, depending on what commentaries you want to look at, you will find people who say that curds and honey are the food of royalty, and others who say that curds and honey are the food of poverty. Well, thankfully, actually, our context gives us some, some help in this. When down in verse 22, it talks about the time of exile, the time of destruction in the nation, and the person left behind will eat curds and honey. So this is not the food of royalty. It is the food of people who are living hand to mouth, people who don't have crops to harvest in order to grind the wheat and make the bread. We don't have a way to make bread. You know, we don't have the, the grain for that anymore. And we don't have flocks and herds that are ready to be killed for meat. We don't have meat. We don't have bread. How can we make a quick lunch? Well, we got to get some milk and make some curds. And hopefully we find some honey somewhere to supplement that just a little bit. Ralph Davis, who preached here some months ago, said, assures us that no matter what the doctors or nutritionists are telling you, yogurt and cottage cheese are not the food of the good life. All right? So uh, at least Ralph Davis is not taken in by saying that this is the food of royalty. And those of you who might be on a yogurt and cottage cheese diet currently can affirm that that is, in fact, uh, the case. But what's it describing here about Emmanuel in verse 15? It's talking about the fact that our Savior will learn to refuse evil and choose what is good, that his character will be shaped and confirmed, reinforced through living in impoverished, difficult circumstances and times. And in that regard, Isaiah 7.15 overlaps very nicely with the verse in Hebrews that tells us 
He learned obedience through what he suffered. Not that he was ever disobedient, but our Savior learned through the cost of entering into the darkness of our world, the oppression of our world, the difficulty of our world, he learned how valuable it was to avoid evil at all costs and to choose what is good and to pursue that which is righteous. Emmanuel, God with us. Now we might ask, well, okay, so Matthew talks about this sign in Matthew 1.23 and applies it to Jesus. Is that the time frame that Isaiah had in mind? Well, I would answer that with a yes and no. Yes, in terms of, I'm going to make a quick case here, that Isaiah had one fulfillment of this prophecy in mind, the coming of Jesus. No, in terms of, I don't think Isaiah knew the times or seasons that God had appointed. He didn't know that it was going to be 735 more years until this prophecy would be fulfilled. He might have dreamt, he might have prayed and hoped that it would be within five years, certainly. Just like we dream and hope and pray that Jesus comes quickly now. Many scholars believe that there's a double fulfillment of this particular sign. And uh, if you go that way, you are not in, uh, in heresy, uh, but I, I'm at the point of leaning no, mainly because of the time frame in verse 16. Before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land, and really it would be better to say the land that you are ripping open, you Ahaz are ripping open, will be forsaken by both her kings. Both you and the son of Remaliah will be removed before this sign comes into existence. Ahaz is still going to get a sign He's going to get the sign he wanted. And that sign is the king of Assyria. He will not get the sign of God's grace, the sign of Emmanuel. So God here is saying that the time frame is the land that Ahaz is ripping open will be forsaken, and then Emmanuel. Now, you might ask, well, what about back in verse 14? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The you there is plural and can arguably just be, will give to the house of David, to the house of Israel, a sign. And God's going to give a sign that he will be the one who will deliver his people, that he will be the Savior. Now let me say this as a third thing about why I think that this is only referring to Christ. If there is some secondary sign here that took place in Ahaz's lifetime, God has chosen to make it such a tiny pinprick of light that history didn't record it for us that even in God's special revelation, that answer was not recorded, whereas God takes these verses and applies them very explicitly to the person of Christ. Ralph Davis again, he writes, take in then the overall flow of the prophecy. Emmanuel is actually bad news here for Ahaz. The king that Ahaz will receive will not be Emmanuel, but the king of Assyria. This Emmanuel figure apparently won't come on the scene until after Judah goes through the, through the darkest of times, ruined by Assyria, something for which they can thank Ahaz and his suave foreign policy. Emmanuel is someone in whom Ahaz has no part he is removed from Ahaz. Ahaz has chosen the king of Assyria, and he will get him to his own detriment. 
but he will not have, King Ahaz will not have God with us. So Isaiah 7 is a passage about a man with worry, with overwhelming circumstances in his life, a man who God graciously reaches out to with his word and with the offer of a sign, and the account of a man who won't listen to the word and won't receive the sign. And ultimately, Ahaz is a lesson to us, a lesson that we can say, could summarize as that we must believe or we will be undone by our own solutions. The turning point in this passage for King Ahaz happens between verse 11 and verse 13. And it's a turning point not only for Ahaz, but for the whole nation. As Isaiah starts out in verse 11, ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. And Ahaz responds in verse 12, basically, the Lord is not my God. I do not take my marching orders from Jehovah. Thank you very much, Isaiah. And God responds then in verse 13. Hear, O house of David, not will you weary your God, but listen up, Ahaz, you're wearying my God, who is not your God any longer. Ahaz had chosen the path of unbelief. And he sends to Assyria, 2 Chronicles 28, 16, tells us very clearly that he sent to Assyria. He stripped the gold and silver out of, this, out of the temple and paid off. He took up an offering, got all the money together that he could, and paid off Assyria. Assyria said, okay, thank you very much. We were going to come down and wipe out Syria and Israel anyway. But now with these extra funds that you've contributed, we can afford to come down and wipe you out as well. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 17, the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. What did Assyria, what did Ahaz want? Well, remember that in the Bible, one of the names of God that shows up again and again in the Old Testament is El, right? You know the name Elohim, El Shaddai, right? The Lord, our God, the Lord with all these other attachments to it, right? Well, you hear that same El in Emmanuel. What did Ahaz want? He wanted Emmanuel. Assyria. Assyria with us. And he got it. He got it. Moitier in his commentary writes, this whole episode is like a mouse being attacked by two rats. Like a mouse being attacked by two rats squeaking for the cat to come and save him. The cat did, and the mouse ended up as dessert. Ahaz got what he wanted. But the challenge for us today is to look at our hearts and ask God, what do we really want? What do you and I view as, yes, our greatest fears, but... What do we view as the solution to those fears? 
Is it a menu financial advisor? A menu doctors? A menu physical therapists? A menu political leaders of our own country? Or is it God with us? That my hope is and my trust is not that I can outsmart and outfigure the challenges of my life and outdo the worries of my life, but that I can actually trust God who loves me enough to send his son into this world and to send his son into not the palaces of this world, but the pain and misery, the hand-to-mouth existence of this world in order that I might have a king, in order that God's covenant might be established, in order that my sin might be forgiven. Because the great lesson from the life of Ahaz is that the very things that we think will save us are actually the very things that will undo us and crush us in the end. And so God gives us this prophecy, this lesson, in order that we might not run to Assyria and might not seek to find our salvation anywhere else, but that we might seek to be saved through one name and one name only, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and laid down his life to save his people from their sins. Amen. Our great God in heaven, we confess that often in our anxieties and in our fears that we function like Ahaz and that rather than seeking your face or even welcoming your word, that we shut you out of the discussion and seek our own solutions. And Lord, we confess that we do this not even not only in the little anxieties of our lives, but Lord, even in the big anxiety, the anxiety of where we will spend eternity, that it's easy for us to want to talk to the self-help experts and to seek our own solutions, our own righteousness, instead of seeking after the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that you have set your king to reign and that Christ has come and that therefore that we can know that you, God, are with us and that you will be our God to the end of the age. Help us to put our trust, our faith, our reliance not on ourselves and our own resources and the resources of humanity on our own political leaders, etc., but to put our faith and trust in you and in you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing now.